Well, good morning again. We are continuing our series in the book of Mark. So if you have a Bible, you can open it up to Mark. We'll be in chapter 3 today. If you don't have one, we have some black Bibles spread around, and we're going to be in page 300, not 300, 838 in those black Bibles. We've called this series Follow, and what, what I think is obvious is that all the Gospels are really a call to follow Jesus, um, but what we've argued also is that Mark especially has a sense of urgency to it. Uh, Mark is the shortest Gospel. Um, the word immediately occurs again and again. We see Jesus uh, speaking in the strongest terms in the Gospel of Mark. A lot of people argue that Mark is written to the mindset of, of a Roman imperial soldier uh, who understands authority, who understands command Jesus is seeing, uh, just speaking very strongly as a commander in the book of Mark. And so we're being invited to follow Jesus, who has all authority, who is the Son of God, who is the answer to all our problems. We're invited to follow Him. And this morning what we're focusing on is the fact that we're invited to actually be on His team. Uh, This is a a little bit of an an echo of what we saw a few weeks ago that we're invited to be about his business, right? As we go on mission with Jesus. Earlier we saw Jesus calling disciples and saying, I want you to come fish for men, right? Come gather men to me. This week we're going to see the official kind of formation of the 12 disciples in uh, Mark chapter 3. And so what we're going to see is that he's building a team and he wants us to actually be on his team. Jesus is picking us to be on his team. So I think the two things that keep us from fully diving in and being a part of Jesus' team is, is one, we often tend to think that we can do life on our own. I don't know if y'all are like that. Sometimes I do that. I think, you know what, it's just better if I do my own thing. People let me down. I don't really want to join the club. I just want to count on myself, right? And, and we feel like we can't count on people, so we withdraw from community, from being a part of a team, from being a part of a group. I think the other extreme is sometimes we've, we think we've found our team already, right? Sometimes we think we're a part of the right team. We've found that elite group, that status, and we think we've arrived. And, and what Jesus is saying is, is no, you need to be on, on my team. Right? It's not enough to just be on a great team, but you've got to be on the right team. You've got to be on Jesus' team. So he's going to give us this call. We're going to kind of see this in Mark 3. It's going to start in verse 13, and uh, it's going to kind of unfold for us. Different reasons why we should want to be a part of this team, why we want to follow Jesus' team. Mark 3.13 says, And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. He, he wanted them on his team. Verse 14 says, And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve. And then it goes through the list of names. What you need to know about Mark is that in Mark, more than any other gospel, he uses just the simple word disciples to reference the twelve. Right, And I think Christians historically sometimes will get these things mixed up because the terms are used differently in different Gospels. The term disciple simply means a follower of Christ. So it's a simple word that just means follower or learner. Right, That's what a disciple is. So the twelve 
can be disciples just like we can be disciples, right? They're followers of Christ. And so Mark is setting them out as a special team that Jesus is forming as leaders. And so he has the little aside whom he, whom he called apostles, right? So they're apostles, which apostle is this official word. I, I think we've shared before in church that the most common way the term was used in the first century in the Roman world was as a certification with imperial cargo. It would be like a certificate, right? So an apostle would be like, this is sent out. The word literally means sent. So an apostle was an uh, uh, a official representative, right? So he's telling us, Mark is saying, these were the official guys. These were the leaders. This is who they are. The twelve, right? The symbolic number. But he calls them disciples throughout the whole book. And so I think what he's inviting us to do is to recognize these leaders, but also to recognize that the call is to us as well. That as we watch the disciples following Jesus, we're given an example that we should follow Jesus too. We see these guys stumble along, and we joked about that before. That's an encouragement to us. They bumble along. They do stupid things. They struggle in their faith, just like we do. They're not superheroes. These are guys that struggle. These are guys that do stupid things. And so when we see that, that should encourage us. Okay, he, he wants people like me. He wants me to follow as well. Let me pray for us, and then we'll kind of unpack more of, of this text. We'll look at the rest of the chapter as well. God, we pray that you would uh, teach us this morning. We thank you, Lord, that you do invite us to be a part of what you're doing. And God, I just pray against uh, the protections that we've put up in our own hearts. Uh, Lord, for some of us that think we can just do it on our own, that we don't need to be a part of a team, and that we're enough. Lord, help us to see uh, your desire for us to be a part of what you're doing. And God, for those of us that think maybe we've already arrived, that we were in the right team already, help us to be challenged and to see our need for you and to be a part of what you are doing in the world through your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I played some sports uh, in high school. I wasn't like a complete uh, jock, but was involved in sports and worked really hard at football, uh, spent a lot of time, invested. In a sense, it was kind of my religion before I knew Jesus, right? And so in high school, it was very important to me. And the summer before my uh, junior year, we were just starting practice, starting what we would call two-a-days, which was a lot of fun in the 110-degree Texas heat. And uh, we, we went in, and there's this chart that they would have uh, for all the football players. It's called a depth chart. And what a depth chart does is it kind of shows who's the first string player, like that's the guy that's going to go out and start the game and be the main player, right? And then there's second string, which is his backup. Uh, And then there would be a third string, right? And then there would be fourth string, which meant you're not even on the varsity team, you're, you're on JV. And I'm looking at the depth chart and I realize even after all the work I've put in, uh, I was thinking, you know, I might have a shot at first string. But probably more likely I'd be second string. And uh, when, I, when I read the chart, there I was fourth string. That meant I wasn't even going to be on the varsity team that year. I was going to have to play JV one more year and uh, just be one of those guys that just kind of graduated up to varsity the next year because I was too old, right? And, uh, and I was really frustrated, right? Because I'd invested so much into this. This was so important to me. It was so important to me to be a part of, of that team. And my coach kind of recognized it. He, he saw that I was frustrated. He saw that I was dejected. So he kind of brought me aside and he talked to me about it and kind of had some reasoning there of... You know, yeah, maybe we could put you as second string, but uh, but then you, even at second string, you wouldn't really get to play. If you're on JV, you're going to play every down and, you know, more experience. That'll be better for next year. And he, and he, and he tried to help me to see and help, help move my heart to a place of recognizing that I was still on the team, right? That I was still a part of the organization. 
And, and I bought it, right? I, I went for it. I stayed on. I didn't, I didn't quit because he had convinced me that, that even though I wasn't on varsity, even though I wouldn't have the shiny helmet with the stickers, you know, I'd have the old beat-up helmet that was well-used and, you know, the old piece of junk hand-me-down equipment on the JV team, I was still a part of the team. I was still a part of the organization. I was still getting to play. And that was really the important thing. And in this text, we see, again, we see the calling of, of these leaders, right? These apostles. But what Mark says is they're disciples. And, and Jesus is calling you to be on the team. It doesn't matter if you're an apostle or not. Jesus wants you to be a disciple. Jesus wants you to be a follower. Jesus wants you to follow. He wants you to be a part of what He's doing in the world. He cares for you. He wants you on His team. The first reason that we see that we should follow Him is because Jesus depends on people like us. Jesus uses people like us. Regular people. You don't have to be a superstar. And we even see that in, in the varsity. When we look at the varsity lineup, we recognize, oh yeah, they're just a bunch of jerks like we are. I mean, these, these are guys that don't really know what they're doing. It's a diverse group. You'll see in our artwork this week uh, for our kind of our theme, we have these like different colored dots, and it's kind of abstract, but we're trying to get the idea of different kinds of people going in the same direction. I think the Army understands this probably better than any organization, bringing together people from all different backgrounds, all different walks of life, and helping them to row in the same direction. And the church should be like that as well. And we see that in the way that Jesus established His team of apostles, His team of the Twelve. It says He called them to Himself. It says He wanted them, right? The ones He desired to be with them. Verse 16 says, or in 15 He says He gave them authority to preach and to cast out demons. And we'll kind of explain that more as we go along. But basically I would kind of summarize that as proclaiming God's greatness and pushing back evil in the world, right? That's kind of what the church is supposed to be about. And it says in 16 He appointed the twelve. This term 12 is a very important idea. It's uh, uh, symbolic, right? There were 12 tribes of Israel. There are a lot of prophecies that said that someday a Messiah is going to come and restore Israel and to fix what's broken. So here's Jesus appointing 12 leaders, very symbolic number, saying, okay, this is, this is what we're doing here. And then it gives us the list of the guys. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. A nickname you've probably heard before kind of means something like along the lines of Rocky. Verse 17 says, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. So he gives them a nickname as well. If you remember, there's this other place where some people offend him, and they're like, Jesus, should we call down fire from heaven to kill these people because they've offended you? you know, so he's kind of giving them a nickname here, calling them thun- sons of thunder. Verse 18 says, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, we saw in the other thing in the, uh, a few weeks back the calling of Levi, who's the son of uh, Alphaeus, who's also called Matthew, who wrote the book of Matthew. So we, we see kind of these groups of brothers here, right? Uh, how many of you have brothers? And uh, what do you think about that making for a, uh, a real smooth, cohesive team here? Several, several groups of brothers. I mean, there's just built-in conflict already here in the team that Jesus has, has formed. And he says, then there's Thaddeus and Simon the Canaanian. This word Canaanian, elsewhere we see that he's a zealot. And Canaanian is an, uh, uh, 
Aramaic term that basically means patriot or zealot. And so in this group now you've got a zealot who is fighting against Roman oppression and wants to have an independent Israel. And you've got Matthew the tax collector who's compromising and extorting money from people and compromising with the Roman oppressors. So you've got these built-in tensions here in the, the group of the twelve. Jesus collects this team of people from different backgrounds. We saw a few weeks ago that he had the big business fishermen that owned the boats and all the servants, and he had the small business fishermen that are just kind of chucking a net on the side of the water, right? He's got different kinds of people that he's bringing together here. And finally, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. That was a part of his team as well. So then he went home. And crowds gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. Because what he was doing was big. He was claiming to be the Messiah. He was claiming to be the fulfillment of everything that Israel had longed for in the Old Testament. Like I said, this is hugely symbolic that he's calling 12 leaders together. He's already casting out demons. He's already showing himself to have authority and be the Son of God, so that it's even scaring his family. His family's thinking, he, he, he really thinks he is the Son of God. We need to do something about this. As we think about God bringing together different oddballs and different people together in this mix of the twelve, you know, this team that he's building with diverse people, uh, it reminds me of, of uh, sports. Again, that, that on a sports team you'll have people with different gifts, right? You'll have people with different skills. I mean, football is a very specialized sport. You have uh, like the guy with the great foot and, and small arms, you know, that kicks the ball. And, and then you would have uh, the big, huge guy that's the blockers up front, the linemen. You have the, the running backs that are really fast and really strong legs. You know, I mean, you have different guys with different skills. Some guys that are quicker, some guys that are slower, some guys that are bigger, some some guys that are smaller. There's, there's specialization. And in that sport, you see all these different kind of people drawn together. I remember when I was thinking about this and, and kind of people that don't feel like they fit but can still be used on the team, I was remembering a guy, you may remember this guy, who won the NBA slam dunk contest several years ago, and he was the shortest guy in the NBA. Do you remember Muggsy Bogues? you remember him? Oh, you may be too young, but um, there's a picture of Muggsy Bogues there. I don't know if you can tell, he's basically half the size of a normal NBA player. I was looking online, and online they had the 10 shortest NBA players in the world, uh, or in history, however you would say that, and, and like half of them were 5'10". That's short in the NBA. Muggsy Bogues was 5'3", right? He was 5'3". He won the NBA slam dunk contest. He was a great player. And I think what Jesus is showing us is that he can use people that don't seem like they fit. And that's what He wants you to know as well. He can use you. You don't have to be a superstar, right? Jesus wants to use the you that is. Jesus didn't save you because He was thinking you might turn into something someday. Jesus saved you because He loves you and He wants to use you with the gifts that He's given you. Now, He may teach you new things. He may shape you to be able to do new things you never thought you could do before. But Jesus wanted you on His team. Jesus brings together all kinds of different people on His team. And we should follow Him because He he uses people like us. Different kinds of people with different skills. I mean, you have particular gifts. The person sitting next to you has different gifts than you. We all have different talents. And God wants to use those for His glory. The job that He's placed you in, He wants to use you there to represent Him. The neighborhood that He's placed you in, He wants to use you there to represent Him. The family that He's put you in. He wants you to use you. He wants to use you there. 
God's shaped all of us. He shaped our background. He shaped our skills. He shaped our lack of skills, right? He, he can use all of those things for His glory. The Old Testament talked about uh, when God was forming His people in Exodus that if they followed Him, that they would be like this special possession, a, a chosen people, right? That would give glory to Him. And that's repeated in the New Testament. Peter picks up that theme in 1 Peter 2. And what Peter says is... He's making you into this special possession even though you didn't start out that way in the world's eyes. 1 Peter 2.4 it says this, As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. What he's saying is you may feel like a piece of junk. You may feel like you're worthless. You may have even been told that. You may have been told by people that were really important to you that you don't matter that you can't be used. And what Peter is saying is, now when you come to Jesus, He takes what the world has rejected and He makes you into this beautiful thing. He builds you into this beautiful house in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Chosen, He wants you on His team. Verse 5 says, You yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He's talking about the priesthood of all believers. That means all people on his team, whether you stand in front of a room or in the back of the room, whether you have speaking gifts or serving gifts, all people on his team are priests. Right? That means you intercede for other people. That means you help bring people to God with whatever gifts he's given you. You may feel rejected. You may feel worthless. You may feel like a stone that's thrown over the side because it can't be used because it's the wrong shape. And Jesus says, those are the stones I want. You're the one I want on my team, and I'm going to build you into this house that I'm building. He wants you on this team. He wants you to be involved in what He's doing in the world. In 1 Peter 2.9, He says it this way, You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. He goes on to say, Conduct yourselves in such a way that people see your good, day, good deeds and glorify our Father in heaven. That's your job. That, that's what it means. You, you go to work and you do your work with excellence and you honor God. You love people well. You, you love your neighbors. You do the best you can with the family you've got. You represent Him in the place that He's put you. Even though you, you have this message in your mind that I'm worthless, that I'm a rejected stone... Peter's saying, no, listen, Jesus wants you. He's taking you and crafting you into something special and chosen and beautiful. And He's using you in what He's doing in the world. He wants you on His team. The next reason that we have to follow Him is that He wins. Jesus wins. How many of you have ever played on a losing team? you ever been on a team you lost? Not, not very many of you. Wow, or maybe you're just ashamed to admit it. Um, I think I've played on more losing teams than winning teams over the years. And there are those moments when you've got like a pickup game or you're being, you know, like you're on the playground being picked for a kickball and, uh, and you're hoping, I really hope I get picked by the big kid, right? Or I really hope I get picked by the one that I know is going to win, right? I mean, you, we have this feeling we want to be on a winning team. It's funny to see this with some people that are just like bandwagon people with the winning, you know, whoever wins the, the Super Bowl or whoever wins the World Series or whatever. They're like, well, they're winners, so I'm, I'm a fan this year, right? Because we, we want to be with the winners. 
And, and Jesus is saying, I want you on my team, even, even though you feel like a reject, and know that I am the one that's going to win. He is the winning team. And, and there's this confrontation that takes place uh, in the little section in 322 through, through uh, 27 and through 30. It says, The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. He called to them and he said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? So they're saying he, he has the power of the of Beelzebul, which is basically another name for the devil. Uh, it's a word from the Old Testament. You may remember hearing the term Baal or Baal. Have you ever heard that one used in the Old Testament? It was a kind of a false god that the people of Israel would worship. And it's just a Hebrew word that means Lord or Master. Uh, so it's just another kind of name for God. Um, what's interesting is, so Beelzebul means like the God or the Lord of the high place or the Lord of the house of God. So some people think this is kind of a direct reference to even Zeus, who was like uh, the god of Olympus, the high place. Um, others think it just kind of applies to any false gods. I mean, in the Old Testament in Kings, in the Elijah and Elisha stories, they called him Beelzebub. Have you heard that version? Beelzebub? And that's the Lord of the flies. So it's taking Beelzebul and kind of changing it to, kind of, to mock him a little bit um, as the Lord of the flies, right? Or the Lord of, of things that stink and, and stench. Uh, but either way, this is a reference to the devil. The, the one, the accuser. It says, by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. And then Jesus starts to talk about Satan. He's saying, all of this is, is the evil one. There is this evil one in the world. The, the name Satan is a Hebrew word that just means accuser. And the word devil is a Greek word that means accuser. It's, it's just the same word. So it's really a functional name. So it's not like, uh, you know, when the devil was born, his mama called him, named him devil, right? That's, he's the accuser. That's what he does, right? He, he accuses people. He's that serpent of old that whispers those lies in our ears that we can't trust God. He, he whispers, just like He did to Adam and Eve, you, you're, you'd be better off if you were your own God. You can't trust Him. God doesn't want you to be like Him. You need to watch out for Him. He, he doesn't have your good in mind. i a, I got a picture here of, of a dragon. You're supposed to go, ah, and be scared by that. Um, that was supposed to be a dramatic moment in the sermon here. Uh, that's a, a dragon from the movie Reign of Fire, I think, which was an interesting movie. But uh, the, the Bible, I would say, wants us to know that dragons are real. That there really is a boogeyman out there. There really is evil, right? Now, I don't know if they have scales and shoot fire. You know, I mean, I, I'm not arguing for all the details here, but Revelation says that there is this dragon who is the serpent of old, who is the devil, the accuser. So there is this evil person in the world whose job, as Jesus says in another place, is to steal and kill and destroy. And he accuses. And he's still active today, whispering in our ear uh, that we can't trust God. Accusing us. Condemning us. Telling us not to believe. Not to trust. And Jesus is saying, your, your logic doesn't make sense here. I'm, I'm the guy that's fighting him. Look at what he says in, in verse 23. He called to them and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? This doesn't even make sense. Your, your logic is failing. Verse 24, he says, If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. 
saying, your logic here doesn't make any sense at all. If there's a war against Satan, Satan's not going to fight himself. He's going to fight what's good. So what you're saying doesn't make any sense at all. Either way, Satan loses. And he emphasizes that, you know what? I'm not on Satan's team, and I am the one that's going to win. When you look at verse 27, it says, No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. But if you're playing a sport and you know they have this you know, great player, this champion, this strong man on their team, what are you going to do? You're going to have people double team him, or right? you're going to focus your efforts on shutting that one down. If this is the guy that scores all the points, you're going to go shut him down. And Jesus says, you can't plunder a strong man's house unless you tie him up, unless you take care of that strong man. And Jesus is saying, I am the stronger man. I am the one that has come to defeat Satan. I'm the one that's come to beat him. So he invites us on our team, guaranteeing us that he's the one that wins. That he's the one that's defeating evil in the world. He's the one that is pushing it back, is fighting against the devil and his lies. Now, as we think about Jesus casting out evil spirits and and exorcism and all this thing, a lot of times I think we have these concepts of what we see in movies, right? Horror movies and all this uh, crazy stuff. Um, I've never, I've I've not seen that sort of thing. That doesn't mean that that sort of thing doesn't happen. And I think in the in the Gospels we get more of that kind of violent casting out of of demons, right? Just kind of these crazy scenes where just because of Jesus' authority as God in the flesh, these demons just run at His word. And part of what He's doing is He's enlisting the apostles to continue that work of casting out these demons and pushing back the darkness. But when you look at the rest of the New Testament, what I want to try to give to you is some kind of way to, some kind of handles for this. To how do you, What do we do with that? How do we understand demons? And I think what the New Testament tells us is that you don't need to take like a 10-hour class on demonology, right? You, you don't need to understand more about devils. What you need to understand more of is the God who gave Himself for you in Jesus Christ. The way that you combat the work of the accuser is to believe the truth about who God is. Right? If Satan is lying in your ear and telling you, just like he said to Adam and Eve, that you can't trust him and that there's another way to paradise, what you need is, is some way to believe that no, God is good, that God does care for me. And the New Testament says that the way to that place, the way to understand the Father's love for you is to, to look at what He's done for you through Jesus. That Jesus came to give Himself for you on the cross. That He died in your place. And that He rose from the dead and He's conquered sin and death and disease. That is the way that, that we fight demons. That's the way that we fight these lies. And when you look through the rest of the New Testament, that's, that's the formula that you see. That's the way that we resist this power. In Hebrews 2.14, it says it this way. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing. So Jesus was flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So what it's saying in Hebrews 2 is that Jesus delivers us from the power of the devil through what he accomplished on the cross. Right? Again, not, not some special class in exorcisms, through what He accomplished for us on the cross. That's how Jesus has conquered Satan. That's how He has bound up the strong man. And what He says here in the text about the binding of the strong man is that indeed He may plunder His house. Indeed He may take those goods out of His house, those who are captured. 
by binding Him up through the cross. What Jesus has done is He's reclaimed us through His work on the cross. He's come into the strong man's house, this world that's dominated by sin and death, and He is conquering Satan and reclaiming us as goods out of the strong man's house. Jesus is the stronger man. And then in verse 28, he says this, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Now there's a lot of different interpretations for this, the uh, kind of the unforgivable sin. And we saw a kind of a parallel concept in Hebrews when we studied it uh, a while back in Hebrews 6 about this idea of, of uh, losing your salvation. What we said in Hebrews is the same thing that I understand here in this text. And uh, if you have a different view, you're welcome to have coffee with me and we can argue about it later. But this is, this is my basic view, is that what, what Jesus is saying is that the unforgivable sin is to reject Him. The one thing you can't recover from is rejecting the gift of grace, of forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ. But there's, there is no other forgiveness. That's the kind of the way, that's, that's the way it's phrased in Hebrews. There's no sacrifice left. If you, if you reject this sacrifice that He offers to you in His Son, there's, there's no other sacrifice. There's no other option. God made flesh, gave Himself for you, died for you. And if you would reject that, there's, there's nothing left. And this is serious. And so the way that we join Jesus in fighting evil, join Jesus in defeating the boogeyman, and defeating death and evil and all that Satan represents is by trusting Him that He is good, that He does love us, that He has given Himself for us. James 4.7 says it this way. I'm going to just jump through a bunch of verses. If you want to write down the address, that's great, but you probably won't have time to flip through all of these. But James 4.7 says, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Again, you don't have to have special training. Just resist the devil. Humble yourself before God and he'll flee. He'll run away. He's a bully. Okay? All you have to do is stand up to him and trust God and he will flee from you. 1 Peter 5 says it this way. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. That's key. He cares for you. Be sober-minded and be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He is real. There is evil in the world. He wants to eat you. There, there is this boogeyman. There is this evil force, this evil person. That He's out there, and he's like a lion that wants to eat you. But he says, remember, cast all your cares on Jesus because he cares for you. And you're going to be okay. Be alert. Know that it's out there, right? But the way that you're okay is by, by trusting Him. He says in verse 9, Resist Him, firm in your faith. Okay, Continue on in your trust of God. That's how you resist the lies of the devil. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the whole world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Trust Him. Saying, trust Him. In those moments when, when it's hard, when the, when the fighting is thick and heavy, trust Him. Trust that He cares for you. Be alert. Know that evil is out there, but trust Jesus. He's going to win. He's calling you to His team, and His team wins. Ephesians 6 is a classic passage. It's, it's the main passage that instructs Christians on how to fight the demonic. Okay, And again, it doesn't go into details about what we would classically think of as, as exorcisms, but it talks about trusting God. It's this passage about the, uh, the armor of God. 
says, resist the devil and the evil forces in the world by putting on the armor of God. And every element of the armor, every element of your, your flak jacket, right, of, of the protective gear that you would wear is rooted in the gospel and who God is for you. If you look at Ephesians 6.10 or 6.14, it says, Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. So the first piece that holds it all together is the belt of truth, right? The truth that we find in this message about God and His love for us and who He is. And then it says, And then having put on the breastplate of righteousness, right? So your, your bulletproof vest, so to speak, is righteousness. And we know by reading the whole New Testament that it's not our righteousness. Our righteousness is not going to protect us. It's Jesus' righteousness given for us. It's the gift of righteousness that we're given through Him that we trust in. Verse 15 says, "In shoes for your feet you put on readiness that's given to you by the gospel of peace. This good news of reconciliation to God, the gospel of peace. Good news that He's brought you back to Himself enables you to have footing, right? It gives you those cleats that you need. It gives you those boots that you need to move. Verse 16, it says, "...in all circumstances take up the shield of faith." Trusting in Him, you defend yourself against the attacks of the demonic, the attack of lies, by trusting Him. The shield of faith. By that you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. So our salvation, trusting in Christ for our salvation, that's your helmet. That protects your head. Right? All of these pieces are pieces of trusting Jesus. Trust God that He's good, that He loves you, and that's most clearly revealed to us, to us through the Gospel, through what Jesus has done for us. It says, And at all times, pray in the Spirit. Continue to ask God for help. Wield the sword of the Spirit and pray and ask Him to depend on you. Using His Word, calling out to Him for help. If you want a couple of other references for, for demons and false gods in the New Testament, there's a couple other places in Colossians. 2.20 and in Galatians 4.9. They reference what is translated, it's the Greek word stoicheia, which is kind of a Greek concept of elemental spirits or basic principles of the world. And then in 1 Corinthians 10, 19 and 20, Paul says that these false idols are not really anything. They're not really real gods. They're actually demons. And so in the New Testament, you see this kind of reality, this soberness that, you know what, there are these creepy spiritual powers, but compared to God, they're nothing. God has defeated them. We don't have to live in fear. And we extinguish these things. We fight these things by trusting that God is good. By trusting that He loves you. That's how we fight what He's doing in the world. That's how we join His team knowing that He wins. is by trusting that He's the hero. Right? You think like in a basketball game, you're in trouble. He's the guy you know is going to make the shot. You're getting the ball to Him. Right? You're just like, just pass it to Him. Just give Him the ball. You know, with, with Little League sports, you see that. You know, you see this, like, one kid that's a foot taller than everybody else, and they're like, all right, just give the ball to him. Let him do it. All right, he'll score. Everything's okay. That, that's who Jesus is. We're invited to be on his team, and, and we have to trust that he wins. And, and we continue to give it back to him as we, as we follow him on his team. The last thing that we see is we should follow his team because it's, it's his family. It's his family. We're invited into this family with him. In 31, verse 31, his mother and his brothers came and standing outside they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. 
we don't realize how scandalous this is because Americans, our, our sin culturally is, is being individualistic and anti-family. That's really kind of the baggage that we carry. So we don't, we don't recognize how scandalous this is. In, in Middle Eastern culture, this was incredibly scandalous. This was incredibly insulting that he would separate from his biological family, that he would separate from them and say, they're really second place to the family of God. And so, on one level, we need to repent, as Americans, that we don't value our family enough. But on the other level, we need to be careful that we don't swing as much of the conservative Christian world has done and swing into family idolatry, right? Uh, if you're like me, you know, can I come from a, a, a broken family and you so want to like, not make the same mistakes that your family made and have a good, healthy family, there's a lot in the New Testament that encourages that, right? We, we want to have these great marriages and these great families and raise our kids right and we need to learn about that and we teach classes on that here. We, we believe in that. But we've got to watch out that we don't begin to idolize that and make that into our new God, that our family becomes our new God. There's some scary movements going on within the evangelical church right now where that's kind of pressing, bubbling up to the surface, that, that family is the, is the absolute form there. And we need to watch out for that. Jesus says, to be in my family, to be on my team, is family, and it's to be the ones that are disciples. That's what it means to be family for Jesus. That, that's number one. That's the most important thing. That's the first love. Before his, his biological family are, are those who do the will of God. That, that should be our first family. So as disciples, we're invited to join, right? We're invited to be a part of the family and to be about what God's doing in the world. To just kind of typify this for you, those warm feelings of family, I thought, you know, you were, you were so frightened by the dragon picture that I'd give you a cute picture here. Um, Seeing that, oh, isn't that sweet? So, uh, for those that are listening in Iraq, that's a picture of two puppies hugging each other. So, um, yeah, that, that's just kind of that feeling, right? That as we are as we are on mission with Jesus, we do get the, these warm fuzzies, right? We are to love each other. We are we are to be on the same team. We are to be family. We're to have community. We're to we're to we're to help each other out. We are to be friends, right? This term we use a lot of times, fellowship. And it doesn't just mean ice cream or picnics, but also means people going in the same direction, right? Being, being together. The church should have that. And as a church, we should balance that, though, also with being on mission. Because Jesus says, this is defined by the mission. You're my family, right? You get the warm fuzzies of being my family by doing the will of God. And so Jesus always balances that. And we've talked about this before. As churches, often there's the swing, right? There's the, the family kind of church where it's all about the love and the warm fuzzies and, and you, you just want to be welcomed and feel close, right? And then there's the mission-driven church, the church that there's always a job to do and let's, let's go and die and let's do more. And, and in the Gospels, those things are held together. There's a tension there. You should be loving each other, and you should be on mission together. So we've talked about our groups, our small groups. We've tried to kind of give the vision that they should be missional communities, that, that both things should be happening, and those things help the group grow. Right? Your, your community is actually going to suffer. You're going to have less of the warm, fuzzy, puppy feelings if all it is is community. Right? Because when you're just idolizing community itself, you turn on each other. But if you have a mission... It, it produces a healthier community. 
it actually produces more love. You begin to walk well together when you actually see that you're on mission together, that you're, you're trying to help others. You're trying to be about what Jesus is about. And we've seen that over the years. But if it's all mission and no love, that's not a good thing. If it's all love and no mission, that's not a good thing. But we've got to join these things together. We have to be a missional community. Well, I was uh, trying to see how much time we have uh, right now. Last night, you may notice I have dark circles under my eyes because I was up way past my bedtime, like past 11 last night. Um, We had our 20-year reunion, 20-year high school reunion. So for those of you that thought I was 25, I'm I'm not. And my 20-year high school reunion. And I was talking to a friend at the reunion, and he he was talking about how great it is as adults to come back and not be kind of hindered by all those uh, concerns about click and if you're in the in crowd or the out crowd or like what group you belong to. You know how you can come back as adults and not be, not feel that pressure that you felt as teenagers of worrying about where you stood with people, right? Or what team or what group you were a part of. And I, I kind of challenged him a little bit and I was like, well, I don't know that that's really something people grow out of, you know? I don't know that that's really just uh, a result of being older, right? Because I think we all continue to struggle with that. It may be acute. It may be worse when you're a teenager. Right? That may be when it's the strongest and when it's the most painful, when you worry the most about who you belong to. But for me, the only thing that enables me to love other people well is knowing that Jesus wants me on His team. Like Knowing that I belong to Him is the only thing that enables me to walk into any room and not be completely petrified. Walk into any room and, and care about anybody but myself is knowing that He cares for me. Knowing that He's got me on His team. That His team wins. It's the right team to be on. That He loves me. That He's come to reclaim me. That is the only thing that enables me to walk into a room and actually care for other people. And so I want to encourage you with that this morning. As we are challenged to follow Jesus, to be on His team, it's a call to be empowered. To know that you're loved and then to actually be empowered to love other people. Let's pray. God, thank You for for wanting us on your team. Thank you that you love us. And I pray, Lord, that you would use us to represent you well, to encourage each other. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.